this is exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. The United Nations Climate Change Conference brought delegates from more than 190 countries and thousands of other stakeholders to Paris to work toward a climate change solution. Kyung Ah Park, head of the Environmental Markets Group at Goldman Sachs, represented the firm at the conference. She's here to discuss some of the key takeaways from that event and what she's focused on here in her work at Goldman Sachs. Kyung Ah, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jake. There's been some skepticism in the past about whether these broad global climate conferences actually make any difference, but it does seem as though there's some real urgency from participants this time around. We saw big, substantial climate change commitments, not just at the national level, but also from some prominent global companies and individual philanthropists. How has the dialogue around climate change evolved over the years to get to this point, and why can we hope that this time is better and different? So let me actually go back further in history and give some context for where we are today. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change actually dates back to 1992 and Rio, the Earth Summit, when the world agreed that we actually need to address greenhouse gas emissions and the most damaging effects of climate change. That resulted in the 1997 Kyoto Protocol that mandatorily required developed nations, the Annex One countries, to actually reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, but noticeably did not include the developing countries who account for the vast majority of the growth in greenhouse gas emissions. Coming out of that, the US did not ratify the Kyoto Protocol, and many developed countries also withdrew. That's a lot of the skepticism around these conferences. Right, right. And In the fallout from Kyoto, people thought, well, people go, make these commitments, and then they don't even follow through on it. Exactly. And you know, every year since, and this is in fact the 21st convening, so it's been 21 years in the making, the world has convened annually to try to actually reach another global climate agreement that has ambitions and is more inclusive. So the skepticism and the contention is very much there. What has changed in Paris is many of the elements that you pointed out. First and foremost, I think there is a growing urgency around climate change. We are more visibly seeing the weather extreme manifested in the form of drought, there's fires, there's also increasing weather extremes and flooding conditions. And related to that, there's also a political impetus in many of the developing countries to try to address environmental pollution. China is a prime example of this, where China was catalyzed to enter into a bilateral agreement with the U.S. well ahead of Paris because they have to address environmental pollutants and therefore they pledge to curb their greenhouse gas emission, harness carbon markets, as well as clean energy solutions to try to address the issue. In addition to this, another driver is the fact that technology solutions around low carbon have become a lot more affordable. As an example, in the past five years, solar has come down from 80% in terms of the cost curve, and onshore wind is now at great parity in many regions around the world, and therefore the cost of making the transition has become a lot more affordable. And related to this, the business case has become much more clear in the context of being able to drive innovation, growth, as well as resiliency, and bring a lot of co-benefits in the form of jobs, as well as public health. So there's been a groundswell of bottoms-up initiatives that have catalyzed the momentum for Paris. Lastly, talking about bottoms-up initiatives, what was fundamentally different this time round, unlike in prior global climate efforts, 
is that we had a not a one-size-fits-all but a very different set of bottoms-up pledges called the Intended Nationally Determined Contribution. So each country is essentially making its own commitments that fit its own political and economic That's exactly conditions. Right. Yeah. And some 185 countries ahead of Paris submitted their national contributions, which covered some 98% of greenhouse gas emissions, and that provided the momentum for a global climate agreement. One of the big debates around this conference, but really going back over the whole history since Rio, has been the perceived trade-off between economic growth and a commitment to clean energy and a low-carbon future. But that's particularly pronounced in emerging markets, which feel as though the developed countries have built their economies on carbon-intensive industries and are now asking everyone to move away from that before they've really caught up. What's your take on the issue and how did the folks in Paris deal with that? I think it's fair to say that developed countries by far have been the contributor towards the climate change, a challenge that we face today as a world. And developing countries have this agenda of making sure that they pursue ongoing economic growth. They need to alleviate poverty, improve livelihoods of their people, as well as some 1.3 billion people around the world still need access to energy. So affordable energy is really at the foundation of achieving all of these specific goals. Having said that, what has brought the developing countries to the table and enabled the global climate agreement to be reached is first and foremost, these clean energy solutions have rapidly come down the cost curve and therefore the perceived trade-off has become less costly. And in many ways, these clean energy solutions enable these countries to also leapfrog away from some of the legacy conventional energy that the developed countries are grappling with. And much like telecom, you're able to harness distributed, diverse, more sustainable energy solutions that bring with it economic growth as well as public health benefits. Specific to Paris, what also facilitated the developing countries to come to the table is the financing support from developed to developing countries. In fact, a minimum of $100 billion has been pledged from the developed countries and hopefully that will continue to grow. In addition, in and around that, there were a number of initiatives that were committed. For example, Secretary Kerry announced that the U.S. will double its climate adaptation funding for developing countries to some $800 million by 2020. And of course, lastly, we cannot underestimate the INDCs, the specific national pledges that were very much recognizing the economic circumstances of the developing countries. So let's talk a little bit about business's role. One event that was organized in Paris by the New York Times U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry told the group of business leaders, we're not going to solve this at the government level. You are going to make the difference. Talk about the role business community plays when it comes to this issue and how that sort of was represented or came through at the conference. Right. So given the magnitude of the transition that we need to make in terms of transitioning towards a low-carbon economy globally, business plays an absolutely critical role because business actually has the low-carbon solutions that need to get deployed. Business are the primary driver of ongoing technology innovation, and we need many more technologies to be able to address the urgency and the scale of the climate change challenge. And businesses are the ones that can actually mobilize and deploy the much needed capital to make that transition. And leading up to Paris, as well as in Paris, in fact, this was probably the most remarkable convening of business leaders, CEOs from many companies around the world, leading business investors, as well as many other private sector participants, really convened to make a pivotal role that these goals can be met in a way that makes good business sense, 
as well as a strong climate policy coming out of the climate agreement can provide a greater market momentum. And there were many initiatives that were actually pledged both in Paris as well as leading up to Paris. And let me highlight just a few examples just to give you a sense for what was put on the table. The White House, as an example, convened some 154 U.S. leading companies. Goldman Sachs was part of the mix. This they, is in the period leading up to the Paris talks? Yes. They were able to bring 154 companies, accounting for over $7 trillion in market cap, to submit the individual company pledges as to how they will address climate change, make the business case, and call for a strong climate policy agenda. In addition, over a thousand businesses and investors actually called for a carbon pricing, and a number of oil and gas CEOs were included in that mix. And then in Paris, one of the more notable announcements that came out was a breakthrough energy coalition led by Bill Gates, many other prominent business leaders, in fact, from 28, that actually committed to make investment into early breakthrough clean energy technologies. And it's a classic example of public-private partnership in that what they will do is work together with 20 countries that also announced alongside us that they will double their R&D into the actual clean energy technologies, so early stage technologies. And these investors will then be able to bridge what is called typically the value of death and being In able to bring these technologies. And, yeah. That's exactly right. Where, where typically private sector capital has been somewhat more challenging to deploy and be able to be more patient and flexible in bringing these technologies to the market. So you were in Paris, you've watched this process over the last decade really, if not longer. What do you think of this agreement, the one struck in Paris, and what do you think the strengths and weaknesses are going forward? So it certainly is a historic milestone for the history that I mentioned earlier in terms of how long we've been working at this. And the fact that we were able to bring some 196 countries with very different economic and competing interests together, I think is a remarkable agreement. And I think it's also important to note that not only do we actually reference the targeting of a two degree centigrade goal, but for the first time, efforts to target one and a half degrees, which was particularly important for many of the island nations that are already feeling the weather extremes and the rising sea levels. And some of these nations will actually no longer have a nation because they will be underwater. What has been also notable is the fact that there are mechanisms in place to actually have a standardized reporting, which again was a contentious issue, particularly for some of the developing countries, and a five-year cycle for actually ratcheting up the ambitions. Having said all this, I'm very much a pragmatist, and as I think about what does this mean for the markets, it's an important symbolic signal, but the devil's in the details of how do you actually translate this on the ground to specific policies and initiatives that enable markets and financiers specifically like ourselves to be able to interpret these signals in something more tangible that we can actually finance and invest against. And that work very much lies ahead of us. I hope that the momentum will continue, but there is always that risk that things could fall apart, as we saw with the Kyoto Protocol. I'm hoping that the urgency around the climate change agenda and the economic case enables the momentum to continue, but the work lies ahead of us in many ways. And some skeptics will say, without really a global price on carbon, that it's very hard for big companies or for economies as a whole to really make the adjustment that's needed to a lower carbon economy. How did the negotiators try to address that criticism? 
So there were certainly um, negotiations around trying to put in a reference to a carbon pricing, but that ultimately did not make it in. And in fact, there was a push between U.S. Secretary Kerry and many of the developed countries, but also developing countries like Mexico was in support of this. And over a thousand companies came out in support of a carbon price signal. And I think in some ways, if you think of it purely from a market and economist perspective, having a cohesive signal on the externality and pricing of it certainly enables the markets to better allocate capital to solution sets that are more low carbon based and make those more competitive versus those that are more carbon intensive. Having said that, when you look at the political realities, both at the international level, but also at the national level, it is incredibly hard to have a pricing mechanism that is large and substantive enough to really make a big difference in the near term. So it'll be symbolic in many ways. And I think what we have to recognize is that there are a number of policies at the national and subnational level driving the markets in many ways, whether it's renewable portfolio standards, whether it's feed-in tariff, you know, whether it's ability to integrate grid and enable a more cohesive energy system to be able to be put in place. I think all of those collective initiatives are very important. And obviously here in the US, the EPA is pursuing the Clean Power Plan, which is getting litigated. But in many ways, that has enabled early action to already start taking it's place. It's forcing the acceleration to cleaner fuels. That's right. And obviously, when you have gas being very affordable and renewable energy rapidly coming down the cost curve, that facilitates the transition already, and the market drivers are very much there. So let's talk a little bit about our industry, the financial services industry. What is the role, has the role changed of the financial services industry in terms of helping meet the challenges of a transition to a low carbon economy? So financial institutions, I think, recognize the very large dislocation that is going to happen from the transition to a low carbon economy. But also with that comes a very large growth market opportunity. As an example, a key role that we all recognize that we can play in capturing the actual growth and facilitating that transition is to mobilize much needed capital to scale up clean energy solutions. And as we said earlier, these are capital intensive, long dated assets. So you need to be able to mobilize capital in an efficient way. As an example, Goldman Sachs has had a long standing commitment to doing this. And in fact, recently, as part of our revised environmental policy framework, we announced expansion of our existing target, which was $40 billion of financing investments that we announced in 2012. And we will now be looking to mobilize some $150 billion by 2025. Many financial institutions are actually harnessing many more innovative financial mechanisms to be able to get towards those types of goals. In fact, tapping into capital market solutions like green bonds, securitizations, yield codes, that are unlocking a more expanded base of investor and capital flow, driving down the capital costs of bringing greater efficiency to the actual financing solutions and providing greater liquidity. All these factors are very important in terms of the agenda in front of us. The other thing that the markets are doing and financial services industries are doing is understanding that investors are integrating environmental social governance criteria into the way they actually think about investment allocation decisions. In fact, some $21 trillion of assets under management currently have some form of an ESG strategy. Within that E, obviously, is climate change risk and opportunity. And it's being manifested in many different strategies. One is obviously divestiture away from carbon-intense fossil-based energy. 
The other is things like passive index strategies. In fact, the New York controller announced that in its public pension fund that they will transition some $2 billion towards low carbon index strategy. And Goldman Sachs Asset Management is it was helping is design, that, design that product. Exactly, for them. Yep. exactly. And that's a passive index strategy. But we're also seeing more investors now doing proactive allocations into green and clean energy infrastructure. And a large component of that is trying to do good but also very importantly, trying to capture long dated yields in an environment where we've seen unprecedented low interest rates in many markets around the world. When you talk about this corporate commitment to $150 billion in clean energy financing, a lot of critics say these commitments by corporations are very lax, they're not well policed or monitored, and they strike people more as an effort to garner publicity for the firm, good publicity sometimes, than achieving substantive results. How do you think about that when you're redesigning our environmental policy framework here? So it's a fair comment to be made, given that there is a reputational consideration to some of these mandates. But I think what's absolutely important is that this has to be at the core of your business to be sustainable, no pun intended there, across the various business and market cycles. And just to give you a sense of what we've done is our initial environmental policy framework was actually published in November 2005. And it really codified a commitment to harnessing market-based mechanisms to help address critical environmental issues, including climate change, while making sure that we better serve our clients and obviously generate value for our shareholders. In the 10 years since, we have actually made progress significantly more than we anticipated. An example of this is in 2005, we said we are going to actually commit to investing a billion dollars of capital into renewable energy. 10 years since, we've actually mobilized over $65 billion into clean tech and renewable energy, both through financing and investment. So it gives you a sense for how quickly the markets have progressed. And in addition to well exceeding our initiatives, what we are also seeing is an expansive set of market opportunities in front of us and the ability for us to do more with our business while again serving our clients, because that's fundamentally what we're about. The revision that we did as we hit our 10-year juncture was to build on that journey, lay out a roadmap for how we will harness our businesses and continue that progress and lean in to capture the growth market opportunities in front of us. And you'll see in our environmental policy framework, and I encourage people to take a look at it on our website at gs.com, the breadth of how we are leveraging our core competencies. Certainly in clean energy, we've already talked about that, but also catastrophe bonds and innovations around that to help our clients better manage the weather extremes that are happening and the catastrophe risk associated with that. We're also looking at innovative solutions around harnessing nature's way of doing things, what we call green infrastructure, to complement traditional gray infrastructure solutions and increase greater resiliency and adaptation, which is very much needed in our infrastructure planning. What kinds of products would, would fit in that category? Well, it's fundamentally about financing and, and potentially investments. It's still very nascent, but as an example here in the U.S., the EPA requires many municipalities and cities that have very old dated pipes and sewer systems, combined sewers, and where there's a lot more density in these cities and weather extremes, there is significant amount of what's called combined sewer overflow. And so there's a mandate that we require billions of dollars of investment across our nations to be able to address this issue in the coming decades. This can be done through traditional great infrastructure, putting more pipes as well as water treatment facilities, but you can complement this with nature. So planting more trees, 
bioswales, green roofs, permeable surfaces, and nature can act as a sponge, bringing greater resiliency. There's a lot of co-benefits because green environments are obviously better environments to live in. And in urban environments, it also provides heat trapping. So it's not as hot during the summer. And so there's a lot of different ways that you can innovatively think about these solution sets and be able to bring in financing mechanisms. Again, early, but the growth potential is very much there. We've talked a little bit about the role clean energy technologies like wind and solar play in addressing climate change. Talk about other innovations and what the potential is for other clean energy technologies to drive efficiency gains in the near term. What are some of the nascent developments that you're excited about and the potential they have? So before I address uh, what are some of the more emerging technologies, I do want to underscore because we recently published a research report from GS Sustain that talks about solar PV, onshore wind, EV, and LED lighting as a very large transformative growth market opportunity. And in fact, purely for solar PV and onshore wind, uh, they actually estimate that we will bring more energy supply in the next five years from the installation of these technologies than the U.S. shale oil production has brought in the last five years. And we know how transformative the U.S. shale revolution has been, certainly here in the U.S., but more globally as well. And those predictions account really, since this is reasonably new research, for the drop in prices around traditional fossil fuels. That's right. So we're talking about being competitive against where you know, oil and gases are at, but the fact that solar and wind have also come dramatically down the cost curve. And we have this virtuous cycle where the more you actually deploy, the more cost competitive it becomes given there are no real material or supply requirements which in turn drives greater deployment. And obviously, policy impetus provides the actual wins behind the back of these technologies as well. So I think it's a combination of those factors. But coming back to your question around what are some of the more nascent technologies that we think there's a large opportunity around, first is energy storage and batteries. It's still quite nascent in terms of deployment and therefore more expensive. But similar to solar and wind, we estimate that it will come rapidly down the cost curve, in fact, from 60% over the next five years. And there's a very large market opportunity because we need batteries for electric vehicles. Uh, and in fact, grid-connected cars will account for over 20% of market share by 2025. That's here in the United States or globally? Globally. And there's an even bigger market in the form of grid and utility because when we can actually affordably harness energy storage at scale, that enables renewable energy to be integrated in a more reliable way, addressing some of the intermittency issues. We are also able to shave off what's called peak load, so the daytime peak load. And for many of the end consumers, as well as customers, particularly in the commercial industrial space, they actually have to pay more for that peak load. And therefore, if you can actually harness energy storage, there's an economic proposition there for the end users, as well as for the utility, they don't have to actually invest in peaker capacity. There's also backup power. So we've seen things like Superstorm Sandy dramatically impact our grid, and many of the grid had a hard time in terms of bringing back the electricity to the homes and businesses. And when we can have energy storage, that brings greater resiliency and reliability for that grid on top of other ancillary services. So we're quite bullish on that. I think the other area that is incredibly fascinating and very transformative is the convergence of what we call information technology, so big data, and the Internet of Things with energy technology. And that convergence is still very early stages, but it'll be incredibly transformative in that that's going to inform the end consumers to be able to make better choices in terms of when and how 
they will actually make their consumption So more on, more on the demand side. We've mostly talked about supply issues, but this could reshape the demand for energy and electricity here in the U.S. and around the world. Absolutely. And a good analogy around this is what happened with the telecom sector, where you went from largely a commoditized model and very much a concentrated model to one that became much more diverse as well as distributed and empowering the consumers to make consumption decisions and opening up many more services. And I think we're at the early stages of that transformation in the energy sector as well. Obviously, climate's much in the news right now as we speak, but it's conceivable, it's happened before, that the current level of interest sort of subsides and people lose interest and they move on and fall back into their old patterns. What do you see as the role of the private sector broadly and Goldman more specifically in helping keep this issue sort of front of mind over the next several years? So let me begin by saying that the global climate agreement, as much fanfare as there is around it, and it certainly is a historic milestone, putting in light of the 21 years that we've talked about in terms of getting to where we are today. But we also have to remember and be realistic that this is a framework and it has to be translated into specific actions and policies on the ground. And that is what will ultimately drive capital and transform markets. So the work in many ways is still in front of us. This is not the end goal by any means. And so certainly for Goldman Sachs and private sector more broadly, we have a continuing role to play in terms of continuing to engage with the public sector in terms of helping design some of the policy mechanisms and inform the optimal policies that enable the markets to allocate capital to low carbon solutions and foster ongoing technology innovation. I think another important role that we need to play as business is to make sure that we continue to tell the business case that we can do these things in a way that creates jobs, uh, enables further economic growth, and is good for our business. And the transition to a low-carbon future is ultimately a net benefit, not a zero-sum game, particularly in light of the technology innovations that are now becoming available and will continue to become available. Thank you very much for that conversation, and particularly the piece about what business's role will be in continuing the debate going forward. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jake, for having me. So that concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on December 15, 2015. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast is not financial research, nor a product of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.